Bill Gaither is a name that a lot of you might know, whether as a writer of songs or as a performer. He first became well-known back in the mid-60s with his song, He Touched Me. Uh, probably his best-known hymn that we frequently sing is Because He Lives. That's one that even if you didn't know his name, we all know that song. And you can catch him as a performer, his Gaither Homecoming concerts that they do every year. It's on TV quite a bit. You can catch it on television, I know, because it seems like my dad is watching that all the time whenever I'm uh, at home. And he's not ashamed of that. If you don't believe me, you can ask him. Everyone called Bill's grandmother Mom, Mom Hartwell. And that's because she was that type of lady that was everybody's mother. We've all known at least one lady like that in our lives. She raised seven children of her own. She brought up two of her own grandchildren. And she brought in and raised several others who weren't blood-related to her. And everybody around town always knew that if they needed a place to sleep or if they needed a hot meal, they could go to Mom Hartwell's house and they could count on being taken care of. Bill's wife, Gloria Gaither, writes about the fact that when she and Bill got married, she immediately felt accepted by Mom. The first time she visited her house, it felt like she'd gone back to her own grandmother's house who'd passed years before, from the way that she just took her in and, and loved her to the, the sights and the smells, all the good and home cooking. And when she and Bill had their first child, a baby girl, mom would sit in an old maple rocking chair and she'd rock the baby and she'd sing her hymns. But as is inevitable, mom got older. Her health began to decline. She had a stroke. And after that, at times she'd be delirious, sometimes because of the stroke, sometimes because of the medication they'd put her on. And the family all braced themselves for the inevitable that most all of us have probably experienced, even in our own family or maybe with friends, but we know about this. When someone has that sort of condition, the subconscious part of their mind comes out and people say things that they would never say if they were in possession of their right faculties. And it's, it's not their fault. They're not responsible for it. But that's not what happened with mom. Even though she wasn't always there, she wasn't always lucid. Instead, in her delirium, she would sing the old songs about Jesus. Or sometimes they would find her just sort of mumbling to herself quietly, and they'd put their ear close to try to hear what she was saying, and she'd be saying, Jesus, how precious he is, how good he's been to me, Jesus. Well, one day, not long before the end of her life, she had a rare lucid moment. And Bill and Gloria happened to be visiting, and they had their infant daughter, Suzanne, there. And they'd visited for a while, and finally Bill said, you know, Mom, you've lived a good long life, and here we are just starting out together, just starting out with our baby. Has it been worth it? 
serving Jesus all these years, has it been worth it? And she said, Billy, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. She passed not too long after that, but by the time she did, Bill Gaither had already written a song built around that phrase, and he says he thinks of it as the last will and testament of Mom Hartwell. And what an inheritance that is to leave. And that's the song we want to sing now. And I admit I'm taking a bit of a risk here. I hope you know this song. It is actually not in our songbooks. Fortunately, we had it in the paperless hymnal. Uh, it's not that difficult to pick up, but even if you don't know it, and somehow I unfortunately end up singing a solo, what I want you to do, as in all of these lessons that we've had, pay attention to the words, because this is one of my absolute favorite songs, and I think the message that it has to teach is so profound and so wonderful, and obviously it's going to be what we're building our lesson around tonight. I know at least Abby knows it, so there'll be two of us, nothing else. <clears throat> Since I started for the kingdom, since my life in controls, since I gave my heart to
Now this song reminds me of our text that was read a few moments ago. In particular, that second verse talking about every need he is supplying, every day my way grows brighter. I believe it embodies the sentiment of the song. We read it a few moments ago, but I'll read it again. The 37th Psalm, verse number 25. David says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I haven't seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. These words could have been written by maybe not every one of us, but almost all of us. I'm not old yet. I'm somewhere in between that category, between Brooks and you. But we're all getting older, every one of us, every day. And the older we get, hopefully, the more we recognize the truth of this statement. But of course, getting older is something that we all try to run away from, or at least a lot of people do, maybe not all of us. But it's why we see old men trying to act like young men. It's why we see old women trying to act like young women. And we've all seen this, of course. They're old, but they try to dress young. They're old, but they try to talk like they're young. They use the slang as if they're teenagers. They're old, but they try to behave like they're young. But we all know that it's impossible physically to arrest the march of time. It can't be done. Aging is just the natural progression of life. It's what happens to all of us. It doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. It doesn't matter how well you eat. It doesn't matter how much you exercise. You're going to get older. And there's no way to stop that mentally either. It doesn't matter how much you exercise your mind. It doesn't matter what natural herbs you take. It doesn't matter how many books on memory retention that you read. Sooner or later, your thought process is going to deteriorate. You find some people (laughs) know this well. (laughs) You find yourself forgetting people's names. Or you find yourself forgetting the places that you've been. Or maybe, and I experience this, I've experienced this my whole life, so I can't imagine how bad it's going to be as I get older. You walk into a room, and you have no idea why you're there. You've all experienced that, right? I mean, I remember one time, I was just a teenager, and I was running late for church because I couldn't find my belt. And this is not news, I'm kind of fastidious in my appearance. And I wasn't going to go without my belt. And I'm looking, I'm looking, I couldn't find it, and I said, where is that thing? I was wearing it. And that sort of thing only gets worse the older that you get. Aging brings about change in a number of ways. I mean, you probably all remember when you could stay up all night long, and now you need a a nap after lunch, maybe before lunch in some cases. But what David reminds us here is that aging is not all bad because with it, hopefully, comes perspective and comes wisdom. That's certainly what he demonstrates here in this passage. 
And what David reminds us of is that while we change, we're young, we become old. God never changes. He's a constant. We can rely on Him to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we look back over our lives, we recognize that. We can see that. Down through the years, the Lord has been good to you. Hasn't He? We can all say that, haven't Can't we? You may be arthritic, but God's good. You may have a bad heart, but God is good. You may have high blood pressure. That's me. Not alone. But God's good. You may be diabetic, but God is good. And when we realize that God is good, we can't help but say, like David, that though I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Now what David is not saying, he's not saying I've never been in need. We've all had times when we've been in need. And David certainly experienced his share of those in his life. David's not saying there weren't any times in my life when I didn't need someone else to help me because he certainly relied on others a good deal of the time, and we can all relate to that. But what David is simply saying is this. I've never had a time in my life when God abandoned me. Through the ups and through the downs, I was never alone. God was always there. David can say this speaking out of his own experience because David, for one thing, experienced a lot of hardships. You know, we read this and we say, well, of course, the king's saying that. He's never had hard times in his life. Well, that wasn't the case for David. He experienced a, a number of problems that served to teach him about the faithfulness of God. He had family problems. And in fact, I hope you don't mind me using you. Kelly, of course, and his girls came forward this morning, and one of the things they said is that they need prayers, not only individually, but on behalf of their family. They're going through some problems. I think of this line, the opening line to Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. He says, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I think a lot of us can identify with that in our own personal experience. You want to talk about family problems. David had a lot of family problems that he had to deal with. His father overlooked him. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You remember this story. Samuel comes to Jesse's house and he's going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the new king of Israel. And uh, the oldest, Eliab, comes in front of him and Samuel says, Surely the Lord's anointed is here. But God says, Nope. I rejected him. He's not the one. So he brings the next oldest, still not the one, and then another, and then another. And they go through all the sons there, and God has said it's none of them. And Samuel says, well, don't you have any more boys? Oh, yeah, there's, there's David, the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. You, you don't want to see him, right? His father was indifferent to him. He didn't think he was worthy to be king. 
That oldest brother, Eliab, despised him. That's in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You remember this? His father sends him out to the battlefield. They're encamped against the Philistine army. Eliab is their part of the army. And he sends some provisions with David, even sends ten cheeses with him. And when David shows up, Eliab sees him and he says, What are you doing here? Who's tending the sheep? I know why you're here. You've come to see the battle. He basically scolds him. What are you doing here, kid? Get out of here. His brother had no use for him. Maybe he was jealous because he knew he'd been chosen to be king. His first wife, Michael, turned her back on him. You can read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is a complicated relationship because Michael was Saul's daughter and she was used as a political pawn. So this is perhaps not entirely her fault. But in any case, it shows again the family turmoil. And if you remember this story, David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and it says there that David's so excited that he was leaping up. He was dancing, running in front of the Ark. And Michael sees that, and she thinks it's beneath the dignity of a king of Israel to act like that. And it says she despised him in her heart. She goes out and she upbraids him. What are you doing? Making yourself look like a fool, just like any common person here? You're the king of Israel. Start acting like it. Beyond the family problems, think of some of the other issues that David had to deal with. He was treated as an outlaw as a rebel by King Saul. Saul was jealous of him and tried to kill him, you remember. And the only reason for that, David's only fault, was that he'd served King Saul to the best of his ability. He'd gone out and killed as many Philistines as he could. He'd loyally played the harp there for him. And Saul became envious, tried to kill him. And so David spent years and years as an outlaw, living there on the margins of society with a a band of loyal men around him, sort of like a Robin Hood type figure, on the run. And he did have a good friend, Jonathan, Saul's son, who supported him through that. But you remember, Jonathan was killed. He lost his best friend. And then that's not to even mention the rebellions that he had to suffer through once he became king. Uh, This actually goes back to his family problems in a lot of ways because one of his sons, Absalom, rebelled against him and carried away a lot of Israel after him and David had to run again. And then, of course, he lost Absalom when his general, Joab, killed him against his orders. And then a little later, when David was on his deathbed, another son, Adonijah, rose up against him in rebellion. Over and over again, you talk about hardships, David had to deal with them. And yet, over and over again, he saw that God continued to be faithful to him. God never abandoned him, no matter what the trial was that he was going through. David, then, is an example to us, not only of going through trials and hardships, But as he says, I have not seen the righteous forsaken. David is an example of righteousness. He's a man after God's own heart. But what this reminds us, much like we talked about last week, righteousness doesn't mean perfection. David was far from perfect. Think about some of the well-known stories involving this man. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. We all know that. 
he murdered her husband to try to cover it up. Back to his family problems, when his son Amnon assaulted his daughter Tamar, he did nothing to try to stop that, nothing to take any sort of punishment there. That's actually what ultimately caused Absalom's rebellion. David had a lot of problems, and yet he is an example of the righteous. Why is that? Well, it's just like we talked about last week in 1 John chapter 1. David was an example of someone who, despite his sins, continued to walk after God, and he continued to confess his sin. He didn't deny that he was a sinner. I think of the 51st Psalm, that Psalm that he writes there after he's confronted by Nathan the prophet because of his sin with, his, with Bathsheba. Verse 3, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So what David reminds us in terms of righteousness is that God doesn't expect perfection, and we should all be thankful for that. God's concerned with the heart. God's concerned with the direction, the trajectory of our lives. David was a man after God's own heart because when he sinned, he repented. And he tried his best to correct his life. He tried always to do God's will. And it reminds us of what God said to Samuel when he rejected Eliab as king over Israel. You remember this? Eliab looked like a king, a lot like Saul did. And God says to Samuel, don't pay any attention to his appearance. I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David was a righteous man because he had a heart for God. And because of his experience, his hardships, and because of his heart for God, David experienced God's love and his mercy, and David had not seen the righteous forsaken. Out of all of his experience, David could say with confidence that God remains faithful. Despite our weaknesses, despite our imperfections, despite our unfaithfulness. And that's really the great thread that runs through all of the Bible. If you've been in our Sunday morning class when we're doing this survey of the Bible, you may not remember exactly what prophets said what or when they wrote, etc. But we've tried to emphasize the big story over and over and over again. And the big story is all about God's faithfulness to his people. And we see that repeatedly. God was with Abraham as a pilgrim in a strange land, a land of promise. God said to get up, leave your country, leave your family behind, go to a land that I'll show you. And God was with him throughout that journey. And God made him promises, and God kept those promises. God was with Abraham's descendant, Joseph, even when he was sold into slavery down in Egypt. God, through his providence, allowed him to rise up into that position of prominence. And God caused all that to come about because he was being faithful to his people, to his promise to Abraham. He was preserving them. God was with Moses 
when he called him to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say, let my people go. And Moses tried to make excuses, and he said, well, I, I can't do that. Why me? I'm not an eloquent man. God said, I'll give you the words. Don't worry. I'm with you. God was with Israel when he brought them up out of Egypt. He led them up out of there. He brought them up by his hand through the plagues he inflict, inflicted upon the Egyptians. He led them across the Red Sea. He guided them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He fed them with manna. He fought for them in their battles. God was with Joshua in the conquest of Canaan. And in fact, what we see is that it's God who brings the Israelites victory. And it's only when they trust in themselves and their own power that they're defeated. On and on and on we could go with this. And David could look back on that long history of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And David could look at his own personal history and see how even through those hardest of hard times, even in the midst of his family problems, even when he was on the run, afraid for his life, even when he was driven out of his throne, that God didn't abandon him. God was still faithful to him. God never lets his people down. He's faithful to us, even when we're not faithful to him. And as we close, it makes me think of another passage of Scripture from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 4. Isaiah, speaking of the suffering servant and ultimately speaking of Jesus, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. God has supremely demonstrated his faithfulness to us in the person and the work and the death of Christ. And because of that, that Isaiah talks about there, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have that same promise, we can have that same confidence that David had. We don't have to worry about being forsaken. There are some parts of the world where we may be beaten, for following Christ, but we're never forsaken. We may be imprisoned, but we're never forsaken. We may be hungry, but we're never forsaken. We may feel all alone, but we're never forsaken by Him. We may be so poor that we can't rub two nickels together, but we're never forsaken. We may be imperfect. We are definitely imperfect. But we are never forsaken. The longer we serve him, the sweeter he grows. Now maybe you're here this evening, and despite God's faithfulness to you, you haven't been faithful to him. 
And consequently, you need to make changes in your life in order to get back in that right relationship with God. If that's the case this evening, if we can help you in any way, I want to invite you to make your need known now while we stand and while we sing.